We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I've been waiting to have this conversation with our guest today for a while, ever since I got a copy of his fascinating new book, Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. We have John Abramson with us today. He's a lecturer in healthcare policy at Harvard University. He is uh, also out with this book, which will be available on February 8th. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Emily. It's a pleasure. Of course. Now, I think it's since it's your first time on the show, if you could tell us a little bit about your background um, and how you got to where you are right now, that would be fantastic. Okay. So I'm a family. I was, I am a family doctor. I practiced family medicine for about 20 years. Um, in the middle of my training, I was in the public health service uh, and the National Health Service Corps as a primary care doc in uh, rural West Virginia. <clears throat> Excuse me, I went back and finished my residency. And after my residency, did a Robert Wood Johnson fellowship for two years, um, studying research design, epidemi epidemiology and statistics. And was thought I was headed for a career in academic medicine, teaching family medicine, um, but realized that my real calling was being a doctor and decided rather than staying in the university system, academic medical centers, uh, I would go out and practice medicine. And I uh, opened a practice about an hour north of Boston in a small town and um, was very happy in that practice. <clears throat> And, but as the 90s rolled along, uh, it was becoming increasingly clear that the information that I and my colleagues were relying on in medical journals and clinical practice guidelines uh, was becoming increasingly uh, coming on increasingly under the influence uh, of the commercial of the drug companies and other commercial interests in medicine. And um, Vioxx, uh, the arthritis drug um, that was supposedly better than cheap over-the-counter um, anti-inflammatory drugs because it caused it caused uh, less uh, serious stomach complications, um, was the straw that broke the camel's back for me so that um, it was very clear that the information that had been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the most trusted journals in the world, had underrepresented the true risk of cardiovascular disease and that this drug that was being presented as safer than other drugs and was the most advertised drug and my patients were demanding it of me was actually a dangerous drug and more than doubling the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and serious blood clots without providing uh, a commensurate uh, clinical benefit. And uh, when I realized how serious the situation was and how little it was being discussed and recognized amongst my colleagues and in the the physician population in general, um, I left practice uh, in 2002 to write a book about the commercial takeover of medical knowledge. Um, and that book was published in 2004. It was uh, the title is 
um, overdosed America. And I was very lucky. It wasn't my doing. But a week after that book came out, Vioxx was re recalled by Merck. It was the biggest uh, clinical uh, prescription drug um, recall in American history. A second study had shown what the first study that I had analyzed and talked about in my book, that Vioxx doubled the risk, more than doubled the risk of heart attack, strokes, and blood clots. So I was the guy who wrote the last book on the subject, and um, the TV station started calling and NPR and so forth. And I was on the Today Show a couple of times and kind of all over the media. This is before the media became averse to having pharma critics um, on uh, around their drug ads. Um, and I had an enormous amount of media coverage and lawyers who represent uh, thousands or tens of thousands of plaintiffs in national drug litigation started to call me to serve as an expert to do essentially what I had done in Overdosed America, to look at the science, to see how the science was uh, analyzed and presented in medical journals and in marketing and in um, continuing medical education for doctors and so forth. And I spent about 10 years in as a lit consultant in litigation. Um, and in that role, I had access literally to the drug company's computer hard drives and could get all the data. Having signed a confidentiality agreement, I could get all the data that they had. And I could query that data, often 10, uh, 20 million documents in some of these cases. I could query that data um, and find out uh, what, the, what the primary data showed and whether it was analyzed according to the rules that the uh, companies had made for their clinical trials and presented in the medical journals accurately, and the negative studies were presented in them, whether the negative studies were presented in the medical journals, and how the doctors were informed about this, and what the experts that the drug company, who the drug companies hired to go out and educate doctors, whether they actually had the real data or uh, whether they were relying on the drug company's analysis of the data. And what I found spending all those years in the drug company computers is that the drug companies had essentially taken over clinical research mm. and that they were treating the clinical research as their private property, the purpose of which is to maximize sales of their drugs. And I could see it in plain black and white. I could query these huge databases and see that the drug company's job, which they saw as their primary responsibility, is to maximize the sales of those drugs and to maximize their profits and return those profits to their investors. And the health consequences of their profit-making activity was not the primary focus of their what they saw as their corporate responsibility. Um, I, in the process of that, I uh, consulted with the FBI and the Department of Justice on what turned into the largest criminal fine in U.S. history. Um, I testified in federal district court 
in a case where Pfizer was sued by Kaiser Health Systems and Pfizer was found guilty of not just fraudulently marketing Neurontin or Gabapentin, but of uh, having committed RICO violations, racketeering violations. And this was the first case that a drug company had bound, been found guilty of RICO violations. Um, and I, I went from kind of struggling to understand what the relationship of the drug companies was to physicians and American health to understanding that I was now had a unique perch mm -hmm. from which I was analyzing this. And I've spent the last five years putting together what I learned during all that time as an expert into sickening to bring it to the public and explain how, how, urgent and serious this problem is and, and tragically sort of tragically fortuitous that you were spending this particular uh set of years working on sickening um given what we've seen play out over the course of the last two years and it sounds like of course there are a lot of parallels um from all of the other uh, different drugs that you've studied and all of the different conduct on behalf of these pharma companies you've studied and one of the things that stands out to me and what you just said is that we actually do have uh, mechanisms that are supposed to provide oversight that are supposed to regulate we have a free press in this country um, we have the fda where we have institutions in place that are supposed to prevent um, pharma from harming from making us sick why have those institutions sort of stopped providing adequate oversight yeah so we really don't have those institutions, Emily. We're unique amongst wealthy countries in not having a formal mechanism of health technology assessment. So the, to, to backtrack just a little bit, doctors are trained to rely on uh, peer-reviewed articles uh, published in respected medical journals and on clinical practice guidelines. And we are taught as the basic principle of quality medical practice that we follow that so-called evidence-based medicine. Uh, that's what good doctors do. Problem is that the doctors don't understand that peer reviewers don't have access to the actual data from the clinical trials. Mm. The peer reviewers have to rely <clears throat> simply on the manuscripts that are submitted to the journals and the very brief data summaries that are uh, integrated into those manuscripts. So what, what doctors assume, the function that doctors assume is being performed by peer review is not. And we do not have oversight of the accuracy and completeness of the articles that are published in so-called peer reviewed journals. And similarly, the experts who write clinical clinical practice guidelines that set the standards of practice base their decisions on putting together the data from the published studies, but they too do not have access to the real data and they can't um, provide any more, and they cannot provide assurances of the accuracy and completeness of the data that they're relying on either. So doctors are trusting that the um, evidence that they're reading 
um, is accurate and complete, but we have no way to ensure that. Now, that's an international issue. But in the United States, it becomes a unique problem because we pretty much alone among wealthy countries have a combination of factors where the guardrails have been removed from the impact that commercial interests have on doctors um, thinking about how best to practice medicine. And those, gu those guardrails ought to contain health technology assessment, which is independent assessment of all the clinical trial data so that uh, independent folks can determine what the most effective clinical therapy is and what the most efficient clinical therapy is. So we don't have health technology to do that. In fact, in the United States, uniquely amongst wealthy countries, it is against the law for the federal government to fund cost-effectiveness studies to determine which drugs will do the job most efficiently. <clears throat> and it is against the law for federal recommendations to consider the different costs of drugs in deciding what the, which drugs should be given priority uh, for use. So for example, um, for type two diabetics in the United States, 90% of type two diabetics who are treated with insulin um, which is 80% of the insulin that's consumed in the United States. 90% um, of type 2 diabetics are treated with insulin analogs, which costs about $5,000 a year, instead of the previous generation of insulin, recombinant human insulin, which costs about $480 a year, less than a tenth as much. But there's no evidence that the insulin analogs are superior that they provide better results, clinical results, than the recombinant human insulin. So in a country like the UK, where there is health technology assessment performed by what's called the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, they've analyzed the data, and they say the data suggests that most people with type 2 diabetes are going to do better, or as well as or better, on recombinant human insulin, which costs a tenth as much, as the insulin analogs. So they recommend to their doctors to start type 2 diabetics on the less expensive insulin. And if for any reason the person isn't doing well on that, they can certainly then be prescribed insulin analogs. It's kind of a fail first is the lingo, fail first recommendation. But it's not as if they're getting an inferior drug first in England. Um, there's no evidence that the insulin analogs are superior. So the belief, you say, well, if there's no evidence, why do doctors believe it? And they believe it because the drug companies can hire PR firms and they can support <clears throat> nonprofit organizations and they can create standards of diabetes care that include their expensive drugs. And the docs don't understand that this is going on. They think that the recommendation to use insulin analogs has been vetted and is coming from academics who uh, understand what the data show. Um, and that's not true. So the bottom line is that in the US, we have a distinct lack of guardrails that preserve the integrity of the information that doctors rely on. And 
you mentioned um, earlier about when you, you said there was a time when the media was more, the American media was more interested in having these conversations about, uh, you know, flaws and what pharma is doing and, and the drugs that they're peddling. What changed there, in your opinion, and how significant of an, of an effect is it having on public health? Okay. Um, now, this is my opinion. This is not a fact. Sure. Um, but what I think happened is that as drug company advertising, especially on television, became more and more prominent and a, and a larger percentage of the media's advertising income, it appears that there are very few situations where there's a, a guest who might be critical of pharma um, on a segment that has a drug ad on either side of it. Mm-hmm. And if you watch evening, the um, news in the evening on TV, you'll see that virtually every segment has a drug ad um, on one side or the other. So I think that the <clears throat> the drug ads, which we can talk about, um, have other negative effects. But I think one negative effect is that the media that's dependent on advertising revenue from the pharmaceutical industry tends to go more gently in its content with uh, uh, and, uh, and is less open to pharma critics. Mm. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. Um, I want to ask about the Neurontin example, because as I was reading the book, um, it's, it's almost I was trying to understand or I was trying to come to an explanation for how doctors, as you say, um, I don't, I don't even want to use the phrase fall for it because that's almost, it's, it's too insulting because the level of, of subterfuge and as you mentioned, PR and all of these different steps that uh, pharma companies take to disguise reality, uh, they're sophisticated and they're, uh, they're yes. layered. Um, so if you could that's... walk us through that example, that would be, I think, very helpful. Okay. And that's a really important point that we can't say enough is that, People have the impression that if doctors would just work harder to get the information, they could cut through this uh, commercial influence. And the doctors themselves believe this to be true. If you ask doctors, they'll say, yeah, I know that the drug companies are trying to influence what I think, but I am a smart guy or a smart woman, and I can see through their subterfuge. So if I talk to a drug rep, I can tell what's real and what's not. And they can't. There's no way. I've seen the truth. I've seen the how the drug reps are trained to talk to the doctors. I've seen how world-class physicians are trained to talk, to give lectures, and how the slides that they use to give their lectures to doctors, these key opinion leaders, how the slides have been prepared by the drug company and how the key opinion leaders don't know what the data are. They don't know what the real data are. And um, if I could give leave one message for the healthcare professionals who are listening to this is that you can't know about a drug unless somebody who is disinterested has had complete access to the data and analyzed the data. You can't know. There's no way. It's it's not visible. No matter how hard you work, you can't know. And I, th- I think that's the biggest problem here is that we've drifted into this era of uh, 
almost all the clinical trials are sponsored by the drug companies. And we've, we've drifted into this era of trusting these results without transparency. Have you ever stopped to wonder why internet access is so much cheaper these days, like 30 to 40 bucks a month? Well, it's because internet service providers aren't just making money off subscription fees. They're also making money from spying on your internet activity and selling your history and data to big tech companies. So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted and that your ISP can't get a hold of it? You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server. This blocks your ISP from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices. It works on your tablets, smart TVs, even your router, so your entire family can always stay protected. I can't stress this enough. ExpressVPN is so simple to use. I use it. I love it. You just open up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Your data is your business. Protected at expressvpn.com slash federalist. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash federalist to learn more. The good folks over at Blinkist have 22 ideas for 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and give them new perspectives on their lives and the world in 2022. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable you in 2022. So how are they going to do that? Well, 22 Ideas for 2022 addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this podcast. We are drowning in content. So how do we get through all of the old content, let alone the new content, to make sure we are as informed as we want to be and as we need to be? Well, Blinkist makes it pretty easy. Some of the most popular titles in their politics section right now include What Happened, Fire and Fury, A Promised Land, Fear, A Short History of Brexit, The Soul of America, The Future of Capitalism, Black Flags, The Prince, and even Letters from a Stoic. And that's what we're talking about when we say getting through new content and old content. Probably Probably, if you're like me, some of those books have been on your reading list, and it's so important to dimensionalize our understanding of new and historical events, of course, so that we can come to current events with the right perspective, especially in these very confusing times. And we all know what tech is doing to our attention spans. So Blinkist makes it easy to be a better version of yourself and to get through all of this important reading. Letters from a Stoke is a great example of something that's been on my reading list because I thought it would help me understand some of the problems that we are in right now by looking back in history. It's a confusing time. This has been on my reading list for a while, but with all the new content to sift through, it's just hard to get back to the old stuff and the new stuff and come away with the information you need to evaluate current events. Blinkist's selections make it really easy, and that is very, very helpful. I think you will all find it helpful too, and I think that we are better off as a society the more we have studied and the more reading we 
do. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. And you just can't do it. You cannot do science without transparency. Right. And especially in a sort of market, it's so much, the, the, the effects of that are so much exacerbated when you're trying to have market effects and uh, all of that on top of each other. And so the Neurotin example, you start the book basically with it. And as I was reading that chapter, it was, again, it was like pretty shocking, even as somebody who follows these issues pretty closely to sort of walk, as you walk through the degrees um, of corruption, it, just in this one case study is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the second chapter is about Neurontin, <clears throat> and it's mostly about the federal trial that I testified in. Mm -hmm. And um, the, my favorite scene in, in uh, one of my favorite scenes in the book and uh, one of the favorite scenes in my career was leaving the witness stand in that trial. It's, it's a huge courtroom. Right. And I could barely see the jury from from across the courtroom in my witness stand. And uh, the lawyer who was uh, asking me questions, the plaintiff's lawyer who was asking me questions, said, would it be easier if you went over and drew a graph for the jury? And lo and behold, there was an easel that had somehow been set up ex right next to the jury, like 10 feet away from the jury. And the point that I was trying to make to the jury, now these are not trained, scientifically trained folks, but the point that I was trying to make is that Pfizer had sponsored a study to see if Neurontin was beneficial for diabetic neuropathy, nerve pain, secondary to diabetes. And they had set up the study the right way. So they had uh, randomized, two, two randomized groups. One group received Neurontin and the other group received a placebo. And when you do a randomized controlled trial, the point is, is the, is the change in the group that got the active treatment significantly better than the change in the placebo group? Because there's a placebo effect and people tend to get better in a clinical trial. So the question is, how much better did you get? So the researcher did a proper analysis and faxed the results to Pfizer and showed that there was not a significant difference between in the improvement in people between people who took the Neurontin and people who took the placebo. But Pfizer changed the whole nature of the study and presented in an abstract the claim that the people who took Neurontin, forget the, for, excuse me, forget the whole placebo group, the people who took Neurontin got signif had significantly less pain at the end of the study than they did at the beginning of the study, and therefore Neurontin was a good drug. And what I could show to the jury by drawing the Neurontin line and drawing the placebo line is that there was no significant difference between the Neurontin improvement and the placebo improvement. And Pfizer had changed the whole nature of the study by just presenting the change in the Neurontin group. And that that was misleading doctors 
and misleading them in a way that they were not likely to understand. And it was just sort of magical that these 12 ordinary people not trained in statistics or research design or any of this stuff, you could see the light bulb go on. Oh, I get it. I get how Pfizer could mislead physicians into believing that Neurontin was better because of the slope of that line. The, the the manipulation of the data, it's unbelievable. And I guess that raises this question, um, which again, it's it's going to ask for some um, opinion commentary, but the, the mentality of pharma executives who are pushing these drugs and who are intentionally manipulating data, it seems on its face, so obviously corrupt, so obviously, I mean, evil, why would somebody be complicit in it? Why would somebody orchestrate it? Um, of course, the the obvious answer is money. Uh, but how would you, in your, because you, I mean, you've you've uh, talked to some folks involved in all of this over the years. Um, how would you describe what is the motivation behind, um, you know, intentionally manipulating data and, in some cases, putting people at serious risk? Yes. So I, I think we've got to look at it uh, through a cultural lens. Within a drug company, the, the, the primary goal of the drug company is to maximize the profits that are returned to shareholders. It's basically, uh, the drug company is basically a mechanism for extracting money from working Americans and delivered to investing Americans. And the props that they use to do that are the drugs. Um, so, um, the culture within the drug company assumes that the goal of maximizing the profits is a good goal. It's a shared social value. And there's not reflection on what are the overall social consequences of what we're doing. So the values within that corporation, reinforced by ways uh, carefully designed um, techniques of remuneration that reward the important people for generating higher profits. So the executives are kind of in on the in on it um, financially. They have skin in the game. So there's a culture that normalizes that, and within the corporation, they work with each other as if these values are normal values. They become it becomes normat a normative way of working in the world, but it's sociopathic. It's designed to extract more money than should be extracted for these different drugs. But it's the cultural view. So you know, there, there are these classical social science experiments where you can um, get you can reward students for getting uh, training people to do things. Like delivering and by delivering an electric shock, but it's a fake electric shock. But if you reward the student and get them into this culture that the goal is to elicit these behaviors, you can get them to give what they think are very powerful electric shocks. And what's I think that's exactly what's going on in the corporations, just taken up to a larger scale. 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so you're working on this book during a pandemic. Uh, what are you sort of looking for as this is all unfolding? You know, this is if, if it's March 2020 um, and then it's March 2021, um, as somebody who, who previously wrote Overdosed America and who was working on Sickening, what were you looking for and wh- how did that play out um, in, in line with what you expected or maybe what you didn't? Great question. So, um, so the the uh, COVID vaccines are like the biggest event in the pharmaceutical in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and in as I watched the COVID vaccines come online, and COVID was very scary initially, still pretty scary. Um, I, I watched with great interest. And what I found, I actually talk about this in the, I brought it up into the introduction of the book, sort of after, after the introduction was all written, because the COVID vaccines are the pharmaceutical industry's greatest triumph and their worst failure. Hmm. It's both. It brings out the best of pharma and the worst of pharma. The best of pharma in the sense that these vaccines are effective. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to this, I will, I can talk for hours about how the drug company misleads doctors and hides data and misrepresents data and all the bad things they do. But they oversee all of medical science, the commercialization of medical science, and some of it works. And we can't, because we get a sense of, of how deep their bad behavior is, We can't reject everything they do because there's no other path to the benefits of medical science except through them. So my goal is to make people smarter, to to think more critically and to do their best to separate the wheat from the chaff. And with the uh, vaccines are a perfect example where we've got vaccines that work extraordinarily well. They were developed with remarkable speed. Um, Operation Warp Speed, um, uh, organized by President Trump, was brilliant. And we had a disaster looming, and uh, the Trump administration just threw money at the problem. And we threw five times more money per person at the problem than the EU did, and we got vaccines much quicker than the EU did. The EU caught up and now exceeds our vaccination rate, but we were ahead in the beginning. Um, So... We get these great vaccines coming out, but the model of the pharmaceutical industry hasn't changed. They're taking this new circumstance of a COVID um, pandemic, and they're figuring out how they can maximize their income. Mm. That's their goal, is to maximize their income. And how they can maximize their income is by selling almost all of their vaccines to wealthy nations. To the, it's like selling widgets to the where they'll be most profitable. So they're selling their widgets, and most of it goes to the wealthy world, and they're making a ton of money. I mean, Pfizer is going to sell $65 billion worth of vaccine in the first two years of COVID, and the previous highest-selling drug globally is Humira, which was selling $20 billion a year. So in two years, Pfizer is going to sell 50% more, uh, have 50% more revenues than uh, Humira would generate in the same two years. I mean, it's an enormous amount of money. 
Uh, and once you get those, the initial vaccines sold at $20 or $25 per a piece, the cost of producing them is very low. It's like $3. So uh, one uh, stock analyst firm uh, estimates that the profit on these drugs, on the vaccines for Pfizer is going to be 60 to 80% of sales. So this is a huge windfall. Um, and they're doing it by selling these drugs to the people who can pay the most. But the problem and the weakness in the pharmaceutical model is that by selling these drugs to the highest bidder and not selling them to low-income countries, so now Africa has about a 9% vaccination rate, they're ensuring that variants will continue to, to develop, COVID variants will continue to develop and to come back and hurt Americans. We've seen it with Delta and we've seen it with Omicron. And now we have a new Omicron subvariant, BA2, that is 30 to 50 times, uh, excuse me, 30 to 50% more infectious than the Omicron that just swept across the United States and was causing up to 800,000 cases a day. Um, so the model that develops these great vaccines has also left us exposed to the continuing uh, development of variants in the third world that are going to harm us. It's, it's not like I'm not making, I, I, I would make an argument that vaccine justice um, is um, a, a moral imperative. Mm. I would make that argument, but I don't need to make that argument because the vaccines, the function of which is to protect us from COVID, aren't protecting us from COVID very well because the pharmaceutical industry is too busy selling drugs to rich countries and not um, making sure that the poorer countries have adequate vaccination rates. It was really interesting. Um, and it's been really interesting to see clinical studies and to see all of that stuff be published in this climate where I guess maybe amateur interpreters of data, um, whether they're journalists or bloggers or just people on their Twitter feeds, has created this impossible sort of uh, mist of information that's it's, it's just it's to cut through the, the noise is, is very difficult for average consumers, um, especially when you throw in the pharma industry, its lobbying, its relationship with the media and the government. It's just really hard for people to get information. So what would you tell people um, about, you know, wh what we know about the efficacy of the mRNA vaccines that are on the market, um, despite, you know, a lot of the disinformation that's out there? And I think it's come from all sides. It's not just one side. There's there's so much of it. I, I agree totally. Uh, there, there's been excesses on both sides of this argument. And unfortunately, now I think the the inherent nature of Internet communications tends to accentuate the polarities and not the not the middle of the argument. Uh, the polarities get attention and they get resent and whatever happens out there on the web. Um, so um, how can an ordinary person who's trying to do the right thing for themselves and their families sort through all of this? When we have drug companies that are trying to make as much money as they can, and we know that they'll hide data and misrepresent data in the interest of um, increasing their profits. So in the beginning, if we were back in February of 2021, when the, when the vaccines first came out, um, 
I told my friends, don't be the first in line here. Um, COVID's a serious problem, but the companies aren't releasing all their data and we don't really know what's going to happen here. We hope it'll work out, but don't be the first in line. Let, let some other people get the experience. And if there are bad side effects, short-term side effects, we'll find out quickly. The press will pick it up. The free press works well on those issues. Um, well, it turns out that there weren't. There, there are some problems, and we can talk about the problems, but we now have an enormous body of what's called real-world data. It's not dependent on the drug company's clinical trials that they have control over. They design, they analyze, they release. But real-world data, we can compare the uh, rates of serious illness and death amongst tens of millions of Americans who are and are not vaccinated. And the real world data is very clear. Uh, with the Omicron variant, which is very infectious and uh, did get through, it does get through the immune protection um, of the vaccines to the extent that it increases the infection rate uh, amongst vaccinated people and unvaccinated people. So just for infection, we're not talking about death, there's serious illness. Just for infection, uh, the uh, vaccines, uh, people who are unvaccinated have twice the risk of getting infected with Omicron as people who are vaccinated. Unvaccinated, twice the risk of getting infected. And you say, well, that, you know, that, that's good, but it's not that big a deal. But the people who are unvaccinated have 20 times the risk of dying from COVID infection, primarily Omicron subvariant, 20 times the risk of dying as the people who are vaccinated. That's an enormous differential. All of that is not due to the vaccine, but some of it is. Hmm. Um, it, what it doesn't take into account is that the people who are not vaccinated are probably more likely to have comorbidities, be obese, have diabetes, have heart disease, be in low socioeconomic groups that are inherently at higher risk of getting seriously ill from Omicron. So that 20-fold increase in risk of death um, isn't all due to the vaccine, but some of it is. And um, at this point, to get back to your question, there's so much noise out there, most of it is on either extreme and not in the middle. What's a person to do? What's a person to do if their, um, their predilection is to be wary of drug companies and afraid that there's really serious stuff being hidden um, and that it's not a natural solution to the problem and the other kinds of things that people who are against vaccination um, hold, uh, hold dear? The proof is in the pudding. You have you reduce your risk of dying, or the people who take the vaccine have one twentieth the risk of dying. So, I would hope that the noise that you're talking about, which is indecipherable, um, and even for me, if I, I there's no way I could uh, untangle it in real time. It takes more time to figure out whether the claims are true or false than. It, it, than the volume of claims that are coming at us. But if we look at that real world data, it says vaccinated people do a whole lot better than unvaccinated people with serious illness and death. 
What about people who are now being forced to make this decision um, in either direction for their children, um, in, in that we have this huge body of real-world re- research over the course of the last, uh, over a year now, um, but they're worried about their children 20 years down the road or however long down the road, and they see what's happened with the in European countries and specifically with young boys with myocarditis and the way that European com- countries have even said, you know, don't recommend it. And there are particular experts here who say they don't recommend um, vaccines or boosters for men in that young men in that very specific age group, yep. um, healthy young men, at least. How are parents supposed to uh, approach this when we have, you know, about a year of the real world data, but they're worried about kids that are you know 10 years old and have many, many more years ahead of them? It's a very serious problem. And um, I want to preface my answer by saying there's not an easy answer. Um, it's it's not clear. Um, but to go to myocarditis first, that appears to be a short-term problem. It happens quickly. It happens within days after the second uh, dose, uh, primarily in adolescent boys, ages mm, I think the peak is 16 to 24, age 16 to 24. And I um, analyzed this data um, for another podcast that I did. And what you see is that there is a clear increase in the risk of myocarditis in boys in that age group uh, getting mRNA vaccines. It's true. But... The risk of getting myocarditis is lower than the risk of serious illness from a large population of the same boys um, from COVID. The small percentage of boys uh, of those boys who get COVID are going to end up with more serious illness than was caused by the vaccine, the myocarditis that was caused by that vaccine. So myocarditis is a serious issue. And anyone that the the so-called experts who say it's not are doing a tremendous injustice to science and to those parents and to those boys. It is an issue. But the data that we have now is that the short term risk of myocarditis, which seems to be all of the risk, is not as great as the risk that those boys would face unprotected uh, from getting covid. Right. Uh, But there are. There are other problems. I mean, I cannot assure people. I, I, I think the people who cheerlead for the vaccines are doing a disservice, just like the people who um, trash the vaccines. And um, we can't assure, we can't be sure of long-term safety because the time hasn't gone by yet. There's no way to know. I mean, right. just there's no real-world data. There's, there's there's no experience with that. Um, and the question about whether to vaccinate your kids is complicated by the idea that COVID is not that serious a disease amongst kids. Uh, I think now 900 uh, children younger than 18 years of age have died from COVID. I mean, each of those deaths is a huge tragedy. In the large spectrum, that's a fairly small number of deaths. Um, But the kids become a vector for COVID, and they're playing a role in bringing COVID into the family, exposing grandparents, keeping the pandemic going. So 
both locally and in the larger community, um, vaccinating the kids will decrease the transmission of COVID. Now, if it's your kid, you want the best for your kid, and you're not going to sacrifice serious risk of your kid to decrease the transmission rate in the community, or very few people would do that, and I don't blame them. Um, so I would vaccinate my kids. I don't have young kids. I would vaccinate them, but it would be a decision that I would spend time making and I would labor over. Um, and I don't say it's an easy decision for any parent, uh, but I would recommend the vaccination. You touch on this in the book, and I wonder, you were also just talking about sort of pharma's market incentives and, and how they can sort of corrupt the, of course, can corrupt the morality of, of an industry that um, is supposed to heal and improve. But I'm wondering if you see, um, in all of your experience studying this over the years in so many different cases, in these mandates, um, a problem with the revolving door is—is is it is it a problem? Are, are mandates being implemented by the government because uh, there are people in our government who are too friendly with the pharma industry, which of course wants more and more people to get the vaccine? Yeah, can we separate that? Can we take the mandate part sure. of that question out? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Talk about it next, and just talk about the re revolving door. Great. Yeah. Because that, in and of itself, is a huge problem. And uh, nowhere was that problem better seen. Uh, are you familiar with the drug Adjahelm, the Alzheimer's drug? So, oh, yes, yes, right. <clears throat> so, so the evidence from the manufacturer shows that it doesn't provide a clinical benefit. And 33% of the people who have mild Alzheimer's who take this drug to prevent the progression of their Alzheimer's, 33% of those people develop symptomatic brain swelling or brain bleeding. So you don't get a clinical benefit, and 33% of people have uh, brain symptoms. Uh, <clears throat> and the advisory committee that looked at this data for the FDA voted 10 to nothing not to approve the drug based on that data. One person abstained, 10 people voted against it. Um, the FDA then commented later on, the head of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, which approves new drugs, hmm. That person in the FDA said this emotionalism in the advisory committee meeting um, is destructive. And what we should do instead of preventing, instead of forbidding advisory committee members from having ties to drug companies, we should allow the committee members to have ties to drug companies. So we don't have such, quote, emotionalism in the advisory committee, committee meetings. And the person who said that had recently come to the FDA after spending 16 years in the pharmaceutical industry as an executive in the pharmaceutical industry. And it's such a crazy thing to say, to blame these 10 experts who voted against approving this drug as being emotional. I mean, this, and it was actually a woman accusing mostly men of being hyper emotional. So this <laughs> is a new one. Um, and it's craziness. Um, of course, the advisory committee members shouldn't have uh, financial ties to the drug companies. And that somebody would think that people were emotional about it because they didn't have ties to the drug company is it makes no sense whatsoever. The point being that this person had the view of a drug company executive, didn't have the view of a 
um, impartial drug regulator that's working for the people of the United States. Right. So it, this revolving door, what it does is it, it, it's like putting the values of the drug companies into a blender and blending it into the juice that's served to the whole country. Hmm. And I, I think we can't do that. I think we need a drug industry. I'm not a socialist or a communist. I'm, I don't think that socializing the drug industry is going to be the answer. I think making the market work to serve the American people's interest is the answer. Um, but that said, industry has its goals, which is to make money. And let's just be honest about it. Let's stop pretending that uh, they can make money, but they really want to help the American people to be healthier. Crazy. Yeah. We're not healthier. The health of the American people ranked 38th in 2000 and now has gone down to 68th in the world. Mm. The health of Americans is exceptional in its inferiority to other wealthy countries. Mm. It's not superior. This myth that because we have access to innovation, we have better health, it's not true. We spend more money, but we don't have better health. Mm. Yeah, it, it's... I was going to ask you the question about market incentives and whether it's possible to have a system that includes market incentives and still serves people. So I'm glad you touched on that. Um, and then if we get to the question of mandates, do you think those have been boosted? At okay, all? let me, I'm going to push mandates back one more time. Yeah. We can have market incentives, just like professional athletes have market incentives to win, but they play with referees. Hmm. And the referees make the calls, the players don't make the calls. And right. what we've got is a situation where the players are making the calls and mm. we don't have guardrails on the integrity of the information so that the public isn't getting the benefit of the information because we don't have guardrails on it. That's a really good way to explain it. That makes a lot of sense um, when you put it that way. And yeah, the, the mandates is, is a very specific question. And it's it gets to what you're talking about with, um, you know, pharma, with the, the COVID vaccines being pharma's biggest success and biggest failure in that the mandates, there are good reasons. In some cases, you can understand why, why an individual business um, or something like that may, may implement something like that. Um, but is it... Do, do you see these sort of like sweeping mandates as uh, having any relationship with the amount of people who've come from pharma and, and are now working in the regulatory sphere? Yes, is the short answer. And, and I, again, I want to preface this by saying, if I can help one person listening to this podcast who was anti-vax get vaccinated, my time is worthwhile. Hmm. People, sh uh, people should get vaccinated. That said... We know that the drug companies aren't being transparent with their data. We know that. Um, and that is standard operating procedure in the United States and elsewhere. So I think that it's problematic to make mandates when the data aren't transparent. If we're going to have mandates, right. um, we need to have all the data and the people who are formulating that uh, those mandates, the judges who are approving or, or not allowing uh, those mandates to be uh, intercepted, um, they must have access to the data. Mm -hmm. So I think it is problematic to be talking about mandates when the data aren't accessible. Yeah. 
No, that makes sense. Um, and I want to close out by talking about, uh, you know, you, you work at Harvard, you've been on uh, Rogan, and, and Rogan is uh, in the news as we're recording this the, the first week of, of February. Um, and I guess, you know, you've been doing, you've been studying this issue in detail, testifying and writing and, and working in this space for so long. And it's so fraught now. I mean, of course, it's always been fraught, but now it's on another level, it seems. Um, do you sort of worry about the the backlash that I imagine um, you have received? Or have you sort of, in a way, um, immunized yourself uh, over the years or even inoculated yourself from this type of criticism because you've been working on this for, for so long that when everything sort of exploded uh, during the pandemic and became more and more fraught, um, you know, you had the benefit of, of of having been an expert in this space for so long? Emily, that's a great question. And uh, I don't know how this is going to unfold. I had trepidation going on the Rogan podcast that I would get painted with a uh, brush that said I was uh, either anti-vax or anti-intellectual or whatever. Uh, Joe Rogan was a perfect gentleman. He is smart. He's a good listener. And he let me speak my piece. And uh, I've been interviewed by a very conservative Fox News commentator. Uh, that interview hasn't come out yet, but um, he too let me present these arguments to his audience, which doesn't hear from people like me often. Mm. And so I've despite the fact that I worry about this, that I'll get labeled as um, uh, as being on the anti-intellectual side of this, um, I think that the internet provides the opportunity, um, it, though, it, though it tends to be po- polarizing, inherently polarizing, I think it also provides the opportunity for people who are trying to protect the the commons in the middle, the public welfare in the middle of these debates, I think it gives those folks, and I would like to include myself among them, a voice to get out a reasonable position so that people don't just hear the screaming back and forth between the anti-vaxxers and the vaccine cheerleaders. I think that does a disservice. And if I can get into that debate, even if it's coming from the conservative side, I'm happy to do that because I want to share uh, my experience with as many people as I can. The book is Sickening, How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It. Dr. John Abramson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is a lovely discussion. I really appreciate the opportunity to share these ideas. Of course. And the book is very readable. There are a lot of fascinating stories and and there's so much interesting information in it. So I recommend people check it out. It is out on February 8th. Now you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. <laughs>